Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which already has been, that which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we acknowledge you for who you are, that you are Almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we humble ourselves before you this morning as we humble ourselves before your word, recognizing that these are your words spoken to us for our good. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us now here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this book that is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We pray that it would make us wise unto salvation today. And that, Lord, you would use these scriptures to continue forming and shaping us into the people that you've called us to be, people who bring you glory and honor, and people whose lives are blessed as a result of living them the way that you've called us to live. So, Lord, please speak to us, teach us from your holy word. We ask now in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've got to start by saying thank you for being at church today on this high holy day in our society, Super Bowl Sunday. It's great that we are here, great that we're ready to worship the Lord this morning. And uh, how many of you guys are, are today rooting for the Chiefs? Anybody rooting for the Chiefs today? Quite a few, okay. How about the Niners? Who's rooting for the Niners in here? That's crazy. It's like 50-50 and the Niners are a California team. I'm just glad the Niners and, and Chiefs fans are kind of separate in the sanctuary this morning. Uh, anybody here just in it for the commercials? Like, that's all you're doing with the Super Bowl? Okay. Anybody not even know the Super Bowl was happening today until I just said that? Nobody will admit that, but maybe that's true of, of one or two in here today. Well, let's get to it. Let's get into God's Word here, and that way you have time to get home and get the hot wings in the oven this afternoon. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we just read, this is our uh, third week studying the book of Ecclesiastes together. 
And it's been a great, great book so far. So much wisdom that we're gleaning as a church family about how to live life rightly before Almighty God. Now, one of the most frustrating things to hear your parents say to you when you're a child is when they make this statement, when they say, one day when you grow up and you're a parent, you'll understand. Right, parents, we've said that to our kids, and most of us remember our parents saying that to us. You know, one day when you grow up and you're a parent yourself, then you're going to get it. Then you'll understand. And perhaps the only thing more frustrating than hearing that is when you actually grow up and you become a parent and, and you understand. And you're like, they were totally right. See, the problem with, with children, especially when they're really young, is that kids, they lack perspective, right? Uh, they don't have the time, they don't have the experience, they don't have the longevity on earth yet to be able to really understand things from the perspective that their parents have. And so because of that, there's, there's so many different things that are happening to, the, to them in their lives, and they're, they're kind of in that why stage, the why stage of life. You, you ask your kids to do something, and they say, why? Or you tell them not to do something, they say, well, why? It doesn't make sense to them yet. So your kids come to you and they say, can I have ice cream for lunch? You say, no. Well, why? Well, because I want you to be healthy and ice cream is not that healthy. Well, why does that matter? Because being healthy is important and it's good for you. But I don't feel bad when I eat ice cream, so can I have ice cream? No. Why? It just goes on and on and on. They don't get it. Well, the truth of the matter is that as God's children, we're not much different. See, no matter how old you are, um, you lack perspective. So you live in the constraints of the here and the now. You live under the sun, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. And yet God dwells in eternity. And so God, he sees the beginning from the end. He sees everything in between. And he has a perspective that none of us can ever have. And so God does all sorts of things in this world, and God says all sorts of things to us instructively in our lives, and oftentimes our response, like a four-year-old, is to say, why? Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. All of the things that are happening in the world, all the things that are happening in your life that don't seem to add up, they're not making sense, they're not the way you want them to go, they don't make sense to you, but, but family, listen, they make perfect sense to God. He gets it, he understands what's happening and why it's happening, and he understands what, what the things that are happening right now are actually going to accomplish in time and eternity. And it's these sorts of ideas that bring us to chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we read, Melanie read for us, one of the most famous and beautiful poems in all of the world, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 here. But before we consider these verses, let's just play catch up for a moment. Uh, I said this is the third week we've been preaching in Ecclesiastes. Um, if you've missed it, here's a little background. Um, in chapter one, Solomon introduced his main point. And his main point in this book is death is going to put an end to all of our repetitive quests for greatness and gain. 
and instead is going to teach us that without God, your life is ultimately meaningless. Uh, The first week uh, title of our sermon was, You Don't Matter. That was the point there. Death is going to abruptly end everything you're doing in your life, and it's going to wash away everything you love, everything you thought you were building for yourself. Death is going to render all of that meaningless if there's no God. And then in the second half of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, Uh, Solomon explained that all of the pursuits and the pleasures to which we give ourselves within our lives also slip through our fingers with little lasting satisfaction. And so he can look at that and say, whether it's wisdom that you're chasing or pleasure, or you think you're going to find it in your work and your career, or the legacy you'll leave for your children and the inheritance you're going to leave for them, he's going to say all of that is going to slip through your fingers, and therefore all of that is also likewise meaningless. Now, if you've missed those sermons, I I, I expect you're not probably going to go back and listen to the podcast now after how depressing all of that is. But Solomon is saying these things to us because he's being realistic. He wants you to really understand life for what it is because a lot of times we want to bury our heads in the sand and just kind of ignore the big questions and go through our lives and do our work and try to find some measure of happiness and meaning and satisfaction to sort of numb ourselves to the reality that sooner or later we're all going to die and none of it will ultimately matter. And Solomon's not going to let you get away with that. He's a wisdom teacher in Israel, and he's like, I gotta, I've got to sit you down, and I've got to force you to think about these kinds of issues, because they matter. Because Solomon knows that at the end of the day, God does exist. And he knows at the end of the day, this, this little life that we're living right now, is, it's like preschool. And then we're going to live for all of eternity, and if we do it right and we trust in Christ, eternity is going to be awesome for us. And so Solomon is going to sit us down and make us talk about these things. So what does he do now in chapter 3 with this beautiful poem? Well, now Solomon is going to say, look, all of the times and seasons in your life from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die are ordered by God, and all of those things are ultimately outside of your control. And this is huge. Because as long as we think that we're in control of everything and that we can manage everything in our lives, oftentimes we have no need for God. And God has to come into our lives and rock our lives sometimes for us to finally go, maybe I don't have control over everything. And so Solomon wants us to understand that all of our times and seasons are in God's hands. We lack control over them. And and family, this this is part of the pathway to living wisely. Here's verse 1 again, for everything, not some things, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Here's the first thing we're going to learn this morning. There is a God-given time for everything. There is a God-given time for everything. Now, we often talk about the seasons of life, right? Uh, We talk about childhood, and then adolescence, and then young adult, young marrieds, young family, middle-aged, empty nesters, seniors, sunset years of your life. And all of these changing seasons are definitely a part of life. But 
you need to know that the two words that Solomon uses regarding time, the ones translated as season and time here in verse 1, don't refer to duration. Duration of time, the way that we normally think of a season when we talk about uh, like this, this, the seasons of the year, we're thinking of like three months, a certain duration of time. Well, Solomon's using words that have no relation to duration. The word season means this, literally it means an appointed time or a fixed time. So for everything, there's an appointed time, Solomon is saying. And then the word time here means a proper time or an opportune time. In other words, the first part of this verse really sees life from God's perspective, from his point of view. See, from God's point of view, everything in your life has an appointed time. Everything that's going on, it has an appointed time. Everything in the world has an appointed time. Everything from weather, weather patterns to governments to the day of your wedding are fixed and appointed from God's point of view. Jesus, in fact, said that a sparrow does not fall to the ground without the Father's perfect knowledge of it. In other words, if, if God wanted that sparrow to keep flying, it would have kept flying. He's in control of all of it. The most minute details in this universe are under the watchful eye of God. Nothing that happens to you, nothing, is an oversight from God. God's not in heaven and, and then something comes into your life and God goes, oops, what, what am I going to do now? Oops is not in God's vocabulary. God is perfectly in control of the universe that he created. Now the second part of this verse sees life from our point of view. There's a proper time or an opportune time for every matter, Solomon says. Every purpose that you fulfill. Every matter that you attend to, it all has a proper time or an opportune time to be handled. Of course, there's a proper time or an opportune time to plant. It's using agriculture here. And there's a proper time then to harvest or pluck up what you have planted. Uh, there's an opportune time to weep and a time to laugh. There's times to keep silent and there's times to speak. He says there's a time to keep and a time to cast away. Sometimes maybe a person is holding on to a relationship that is really unhealthy for them. They're trying to keep, they're trying to hold on. And, and the wise thing is actually that, hey, it's actually a time to like cast away, to do away from or do away with that unhealthy relationship. Or maybe somebody's been working at a particular dream that you have or a, a goal that you're trying to accomplish and the people around you are saying, hey, it's time to give that thing up. Maybe it's actually a time to keep going and to hold on to it. Well, how do you know which, which is the right time? The answer is wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is the ability to understand the times of life and to work within those opportune times. And this is our responsibility. Now, these two things might sound contradictory, we're saying that on one hand, everything that's going on in our lives is under God's control, that God is, he, he, he knows about it, and that God is not letting anything happen to us um, sort of uh, uh, willy-nilly, like he's just not, he's not there, he's not present, he's not aware. And yet we're saying that at the same time, we're responsible to take advantage of the opportunities that come our way in life. To state it another way, God is sovereign 
and we are responsible for our lives. But these two things are parallel truths in the Bible that we have got to hold on to or we'll be really unhealthy Christians. According to the Bible, these two truths, that God is sovereign and that you are responsible in your life, are like two tracks on a train track that just run parallel forever. They never intersect. They never contradict. They're both just true. And we have to hold on to them. We operate in the t- in, within the constraints of time. And God is eternal. In this poem, what Solomon is trying to help you and I understand is that there is an appointed and an opportune time for everything in our lives. He's going to flesh that out in the rest of the poem. In verses 2 through 8, he's going to basically pair together opposite extremes to show us that what he is he's trying to say is that uh, not only are those two things true, but everything that lies between. In verse 2, he begins with birth and death. Solomon here is going to say that there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. He's spanning the whole of your life here. And he's saying that there was a, there was a moment in God's economy where he decided that you were going to be born. And that was intentional. The fact that you're alive right now, this is part of God's plan for you, God's plan for me. And just as God planned the day of your birth and your entrance into this life, God has also appointed your day of death. He knows when that's going to happen. Now, obviously all of us can stop and say, yeah, I had nothing to do with the day I was born. Parents had something to do with it. But trace it behind that, God had something to do with it. God appointed the day that you were born. You have no control over that. That's part of Solomon's point. And likewise, we don't have control over the day that we die. And Solomon's trying to drill that into our heads here. In the second part of verse 2 all the way through verse 7, or verse 8 rather, Solomon is going to cover the range of human experiences and emotions. He's going to talk about things like weeping. He's going to talk about things like dancing. He's going to talk about things like loving and hating and war and peace. And he's just trying to say, look, when I said everything has its time, I meant everything. That's what he's trying to get across. Just he's, he's given us some of these extremes in life that depict the range of human experience, the range of human emotion and relationship. And he's saying all of that stuff has a proper and appointed time by God in your life. It's important and instructive to notice that he doesn't offer you any advice on which particular action is preferred. He doesn't say, well, the better thing is to be laughing and not mourning. Although from our experience, that definitely feels better to be in the place of laughter and not mourning. But he's not saying either are better or worse. That's not his point. He's not trying to tell you which one of these things to pursue. His point again is just to say that there is an appointed or opportune time for everything in our lives. Okay, we, do we all have that? We've all got it? We're clear here? Okay. Every one of us in this room are sort of working our five-year or ten-year plan. Maybe you're, you're one of those real big thinkers. You've got a 20-year plan going, but all of us have a plan, right? And, and you're working at it. This is what I'm going to try to do. These are my goals for the next season of my life. These are the things that I want to accomplish, 
and this is how I think I'm going to go and get it done. And that's great, and it's good to have goals, and it's good to have plans. But Solomon is going to say, listen, you've got to understand that at the end of the day, you don't control any of that. No matter what you're trying to do in your life, at the end of the day, you're playing a part in the life that you're building, but you're not ultimately in control of the life that you're building. One commentator, David Gibson, puts it this way. He says, as each of us construct the edifice of our lives, we are neither architect nor site manager. We are each writing the story of our lives, but we are not the main author, end quote. So yes, we have a plan. We're working it. We're trying to build the life that we want, and that's fine, and that's good, so long as you understand that you're not the main author. You don't get to control every line written in every chapter of the story. There's a grander author. There's a greater author who's actually in control of our lives. The same point is made in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. James says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. This is so helpful because this is a necessary step on the path to living wisely. We need to understand that there is a God-given time for everything in our lives. Well, this brings us to the second point we're going to see in this text. Because there's a God-given time for everything, there is a God-given purpose in everything. There is a God-given purpose in everything. Let's read again verses 9 through 11. Solomon says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, verse 9 is a repeat of the key question of the entire book. In our first sermon in chapter 1, we talked about how the key question of the book is chapter 1, verse 3. Here's the question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon is coming back to that question now, and he's saying, what gain has the worker from all of his toil, from all of the labor, from all of the energy and exertion in my life? Solomon's looking at the fact that there is an appointed time for everything in your life. And he's saying, if that's true, if God has control over everything, then does it really matter how I live? What's the point of all that I am doing in my life right now? Is there anything that can be gained out of my labor and effort? Especially in light of all of of life's challenges. Verse 10 reminds us of chapter 1, verse 13, where Solomon had written, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. See, the reality of life as we're living it, 
on this side of the fall, this side of Genesis chapter 3, is that life is hard. Life is difficult. Life oftentimes is full of frustrations and vexations. Our work, our relationships, our physical bodies are often given over to frustration and dysfunction. So what can be said about all of that? What can be said about all that? Answer, verse 11. Solomon says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. For Solomon, and for all of the wisdom writers in Scripture, far from being a discouragement to our lives, the fact that we have a God who is sovereign and in control of our futures and our destinies is the greatest encouragement imaginable. Because we know that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now this is super important, so, so listen. Not everything is beautiful at the time. Not everything is beautiful at the time. But he has made everything beautiful in its time. See, if you stop and think about it, life is a mixed bag of experiences. There are lots of good things that happen and good times that put a smile on our face and fill our hearts with joy. And then there are a lot of times that are challenging or sorrowful or full of grief. And they're difficult and they're challenging. Each of us right now could look back on chapters of our life that we, we look back on with great fondness. And then there's other chapters of our, of our life that we look back on and we go, man, I wish I could rewrite that chapter. And yet still there are some chapters in your story that you go, I wish that wasn't a part of the story at all. I hate that chapter. I wish it wasn't there. But family, God is at work in all of it. Every single chapter, every single sentence on every single page of your story, God is superintending. God is working through all of it. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Now this verse refers back to creation where God did in fact make everything beautiful. Do you remember in Genesis, after God creates, he, co he constantly stops and he assesses his work and he says, it is good. It is pleasing. It is right. It is beautiful. But this verse is also including everything since creation. Solomon says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's trying to point us back to the poem that he just wrote, a poem about time and the, the fact that there's a time for everything. And he's saying that God is making everything and will ultimately make everything beautiful in its time. God is working everything in the lives of of his people, and he's working everything in history toward good, ultimate ends. Ultimately, everything in history will culminate in a story where justice triumphs, where righteousness reigns, where peace is established, and where God's glory is evident to all mankind. And not only that, but for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we have the promise found in Romans 8.28, where Paul could say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now notice Paul is not trying to say everything that you experience in your life feels good in the moment or is good in, it, in and of itself. No, no, no. What Paul is saying is that if you belong to Jesus Christ, then God is going to take every event in your life, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and he's going to weave it together into a story that is ultimately going to result in your eternal good. It's amazing. But we're not there yet. We're not sitting there in eternity getting to read the concluding chapter to your earthly story yet. We're in the here and now. We're in the why stage, right? We're living in time where we're going, this doesn't look good. Or I don't see how this thing that's happening to me could possibly work out in my story for a good ultimate purpose. It's hard for us to see right now. Especially if your life is one that has been, has been marked by tragedy or has been marked by injustice. You're looking and you're going, these things are just horrific. And so we don't understand how it all works out. But we have God's promise that it will. You know, sometimes with your children, to go back to the, uh, the illustration I was using in my introduction, you can try to answer your kids' questions. You can try to reason with them. You can try to explain to them why you're doing what you're doing from your grander perspective. And yet the best that you can do sometimes with your children is look them square in the eyes and say, trust me. Trust me. And they should trust you. Because someday they're going to grow up and they're going to go, ah, I get it. I know I couldn't have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's where we're at right now. God is saying to us, Trust me. Trust me. I've got it all under control. One of the best biblical examples outside of Jesus Christ's life and story is the story of Joseph found back in the book of Genesis. You'll remember Joseph was a young boy, uh, probably a young teenager, and was one of 12 brothers, and his 11 brothers were jealous of him, and they took him, and they sold him into slavery in the land of Egypt. They went back and they told their dad, oh, sorry, your favorite son, Joseph, was mauled by wild animals. And his dad's heartbroken. And Joseph finds his way as this young, uh, this young man taken to a foreign land, and he's in slavery in a very powerful man's house, a man named Potiphar. He was the captain of the guard. Uh, so this guy was in charge of basically the, the military force. Um, and so he was super powerful, and Joseph's there and he keeps trying to honor God and live for the Lord. And he gets raised up in Potiphar's house and now he's like the manager. He's running everything. All of Potiphar's house, all of his servants, all of his resources are under Joseph's control. And he's like, okay, cool. It seems like things are coming together for me. I'm climbing the corporate ladder. I'm making a name for myself. This is awesome. And then Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph, but he wants to honor God, and he says no to that. And so Potiphar's wife is embarrassed and humiliated, and she falsely accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. And now this accusation comes on Joseph, and Potiphar takes Joseph and casts him in prison. And so here's Joseph going, oh my gosh, just when I felt like things were starting to go somewhere, the bottom fell out again. God, what are you doing in all of this? Why are you doing this? And he's in prison. Well, it's in prison that Joseph is able to meet a couple of important people. People that work directly for Pharaoh. The baker 
and the cupbearer of Pharaoh. And he interprets their dreams. And one of the dreams is, hey, sorry, buddy, but you're about to die. You're going to go out and Pharaoh's going to have you hung and executed. And the other guy is told, you're going to be restored to your position. It's good to be that guy and a bummer to be the other guy. But that's what Joseph says. This is what your dreams mean. And it comes to pass. And Joseph says, just don't forget me when you get out there and you get restored and you're Pharaoh's cupbearer again. And the guy goes, oh, I'll never forget. Yeah, you totally hooked me up. I'll take care of you. Well, the guy gets out and he becomes the cupbearer again. And what does he do? He forgets. He forgets and he just leaves Joseph. And Joseph is like, oh my gosh, that was my one chance to get out of prison. And here I am still in prison. Joseph felt forgotten, but God had not forgotten. One day, Pharaoh has a dream. And he calls all of his wise men together and he shares his dream with them and nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer is standing there and he's going, man, I, I know a guy. And he's, he's probably a little nervous to, to tell the story because he, he left Joseph. He didn't uphold his end of the bargain, but he knows that Pharaoh's really frustrated. He's going to start, he's going to start just, uh, you know, killing people probably if they can't interpret this dream. So he says, hey, I know a guy. He's in prison. He interpreted my dream. So Pharaoh calls Joseph to him. He shares his dream and Joseph interprets the dream. And he says there's going to be a famine and it's going to decimate Egypt, and because we're the global superpower, it's going to decimate the world. You've got to store up grain for seven years. And Pharaoh says, you know what? I need a wise guy who can, who can do that for me, and I can see nobody better than you, Joseph. And so he makes Joseph second in command, prime minister of Egypt. This man is now in power and in control of everything under Pharaoh. And through Joseph's wisdom, he's able to store up enough grain to cause Egypt to survive this great famine and his own family, which is the family of promise, to survive the great famine. And one day when his brothers came to get grain, because they were dying and their dad said, just go down to Egypt, I hear there's grain there. They come and they're reunited with their brother Joseph, who decades before they had betrayed, they had, they had sold into slavery. They come face to face with him and they're terrified. And they're expecting that Joseph is going to just kill them, have them executed for what they've done. And listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, look, everything that happened to me, even the malicious injustices that were perpetuated against me in my life. You might have meant it for evil. You had bad motives at heart, but God knew what he was doing. And these were all the steps that needed to take place to get me to the position that I could deliver Egypt and deliver my own family from starvation and continue the purposes and the plan of God in the world. God knew what he is doing. Church, there is a God-given purpose in everything. But for the non-Christian, God has a purpose in the constraints of time and frustrations of change too. Verse 11 goes on to say that he has put eternity into man's heart. Although we live within the confines of time and circumstances that are outside of our control, God has placed an innate desire in our hearts for something beyond our earthly lives. The Bible says that human beings are created in the image of God, and God is an eternal being. The Bible tells us that as humans, we're going to live on forever. This is 
why humans have almost universally believed in life after death, life beyond our current existence, some sort of a concept of an afterlife. Now, most of you this morning are aware of who C.S. Lewis is. He was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote many other amazing books too. I would commend anything that C.S. Lewis wrote to you. But one of his most famous quotes relates to this idea, this idea that there's eternity placed in our hearts and it's found in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis writes this, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, end quote. Lewis is pointing out this fact that within our heart, at the core of our being, there's, there's always a longing for something that we, have not, that we don't have access to in this life. Now we know that our first parents in the book of Genesis were created to live with God forever. Sin, of course, brought death and separation, but our desire to be reunited with God remains. It's in our hearts. And yet, here we are, confined to the parameters of time and circumstance. And because of that, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, as verse 11 points out. You and I might have eternity placed in our hearts, but we do not live in the eternal realm. We cannot understand all that God is doing in the world or even all that God is doing in our own lives. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly. Now we know in part. So we can't figure it all out. So what do we do in the here and now? How then should we live? Well, this brings us to our final point this morning. There is a God-honoring response to everything. Solomon's going to give us two responses that are required of us, that the times and constraints of life are meant to drive us to. And the first God-honoring response is this, that we take whatever time we've been given and enjoy what God has given us. Look at verse 12 again. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now last week we heard Solomon give similar advice at the end of chapter 2. Eat and drink. And later he's going to say, and do those things with the people that you love and take pleasure in all of your toil and in the good things that your work provides for you. He's saying, enjoy these things. This is God's good gift to you. This is the good life. At the end of the day, this is what life is all about. Under the sun, it's about sitting down and lingering over a meal of good food with the people that you love the most. When a loved one passes away, people never say, Man, I wish she was still here so I could leave her for 10 hours a day to go work. Right? That's not what people say. People say, man, I wish she was still here so I could just have one more conversation with her. So I could just embrace her one more time. So I could hear her voice one more time. So I could see her one more time. 
This is what life is really about. This is what actually brings joy to us as humans. This is the good life. And, and, and Solomon is going to come back to this same instruction like five times in these 12 chapters because we as humans get this twisted so much. We think the good life is always over the horizon. It's that next thing that I can get, that next achievement that I, that I, can, that I can conquer. And we keep living for that next thing and we're missing out on life right now. And what Solomon is saying is, how do we live in the times and the seasons that God has given to us? Well, listen, yeah, we work, but we pause and we sit down every single day. And instead of letting food just be a necessary thing to fuel me on to my next activity, we just sit and we linger around a good meal and good drink with the good people that God has given to us in our life and find joy in that. And see all of those things as gifts that God has given to you here and now for your joy. Number two, how do we respond? We trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom and live in reverent awe of him. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Translation, God's work endures forever. Although your work, your plans can be frustrated and be changed, not so with God. He is perfectly sovereign. He is in control. And his awesome power and wisdom and control over times and seasons is meant to lead us to fear him. I know for a lot of us, that's kind of an unsatisfactory conclusion there. Like if it said it's meant to lead us to love him, we'd say, okay, cool. I get that. God wants us to love him, but fear him. That, that sort of um, conjures up feelings of fright and dread as we read it. But it only does that if we misunderstand what the Bible means when it says to fear the Lord. Tim Keller helps unpack the idea for us. He he points out that oftentimes in the Old Testament, fearing the Lord is coupled together with being happy. So for example, Proverbs 28, 14 says, happy is the one who fears the Lord. I know we put a quote up there. I'm going to get to it in just a moment. Everybody's like, he's not saying that right now. This is disconnecting. So uh, Proverbs 28, 14 says, happy is the one who fears the Lord. That's bizarre if we think of fearing God as just being in dread of who he is. How how would fearing God make me happy? Keller says, perhaps most surprising is Psalm 130 verse 4, where the psalmist says, forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. So think about that. If, 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 If we're to think of fear as being in dread of God, I mean terrified of him, why would receiving forgiveness and grace increase our terror of God? It should increase our feeling that we're on right terms with God. Other passages tell us that we can be instructed to grow in the fear of the Lord and that the fear of the Lord is characterized by praise, wonder, and delight. So here's the Keller quote. We can put it back up now. Keller says, Obviously, to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible is to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love, end quote. 
And this is exactly what this passage of Scripture intends to evoke in us. A sense of being overwhelmed at the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of who God is and of his great love for his creation. When you and I stop and we just consider our lives, all of our highs, all of our lows, all of our dreams, all of our disappointments, all of our successes, all of our failures, and we come to realize that God is working in all of it to accomplish his good ends, we're humbled and we stand in awe of his wisdom and his power and his goodness toward us. I'm not sure what condition your life is in as you've walked into church this morning. Maybe you've come to church today and life is awesome. It seems like you're kind of firing on all eight cylinders. Everything is working out the way you want it right now. People are happy and healthy around you. Business is going good. If that's where you're at, Praise God. Rejoice. Enjoy the season that you're in right now. And see, all of that is just sheer grace because you're not promised that this side of eternity. So enjoy it and embrace it for what it is and allow it to cause you to worship God for his grace. Maybe you've joined us this morning and maybe you're in the polar opposite extreme. Maybe the season of life you're in right now would be characterized by words like terrible, horrific. Maybe you're in the throes of grief over the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're uncertain about the future of your job. They're talking about cuts and they don't know if they're going to have a place for you. Maybe you're looking at your marriage this morning and you're saying, honestly, I don't even know if we're going to make it till summer with the way that things are in my home right now. What do we do with that? answer is we turn to God. We allow the helplessness of our situation to be a mentor to you, a guide, an instructor to you that shows you the truth about your life. Ultimately, your life is outside of your control. It's out of your hands. All of us are dependent on God, but not just any God, a God who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, and who is good. And who, for those who turn to him in faith, he is working all those circumstances in your life to ultimate good ends. He's working those things together for your good and his glory. And so turn to him this morning. Trust in him this morning. Seek him with all of your heart this morning. And if you do, you'll find him. And in finding him, you'll find life everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the many truths that we've considered about who you are this morning. Ideas of you being our creator, ideas of you being all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful, the fact that you are sovereign, meaning that you are in control of everything. What a terrifying world this would be if everything was just up to chance, if, if everything was just chaotic. It'd be a world of no hope and no future, but we're reminded this morning that far from being a world of chance and chaos, this is a world that is being ordered by an all-knowing, all-powerful 
and all good God. And we worship you for these things this morning. But Lord, we're not just thinking in general about your control over the world. We're thinking this morning about the specifics of your control over our lives. That yes, of course we live in a broken world. Of course, sin has damaged and wreaked havoc on all of our relationships and on creation itself, and we live in a broken world right now. But it's a world that you created, and it's a world that you are going to recreate, and you're going to make all things new and perfect. And we look forward to that day with ever-increasing hope and longing. But in the here and now, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be Children who at times, of course, are going to say why, but children who at the end of the day can just trust you. Believe that you are who you say that you are. Believe that you will be faithful. Believe that you will deliver on your promises. And we pray that your faithfulness would cause us to be faithful in response. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.